You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. All right, here is the leading question. What is your relationship to the Bible? That is what I want us to wrestle with for the entirety of the semester. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to reckon with the Bible. There is no getting around it. There is no going over it. There is just going through it. And to be fair, the Bible is a really strange story. It is one bound piece of leather, but it's 66 individual pieces of writing, close to 40 authors, some of whom study historians have found difficult to even name. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Much of what we read comes from an oral tradition, meaning stories were less written down and more vocally shared. It's a story that starts off with a talking reptile, a sibling murdering his brother, a certain people group called the Nephilim, who are described as the sons of God, seemingly doing some scandalous things, and a global flood brought on by God himself because he seemingly regretted making us. And that is just the first six chapters. The Bible is strange. It has a host of odd stories that as post-enlightened Western intellectuals we want to throw out, they do not belong in the stories of modernity. It is old-fashioned, reads more like a mishmash of kings and queens, war generals and armies, genealogies and fables than it does the story of reality. Not to mention, by the way, how the Bible has been used for all sorts of evil in the world. It has been used to justify the Crusades, which are military expeditions to recover the Holy Land through religious violence. It's been used for colonization, the takeover of African countries by European influence. It's been used to justify race-based slavery in this country, in this city. Parts of this book literally ripped out and handed to slaves to teach them to read, but not to read too much of the story, i.e. take out the entire book of Exodus and any reference to it so as not to promote being free in the world. It has been used to suppress particularly marginalized voices in majority cultures such as women, but not only women, those with less economic means. It's been used for political maneuvers, props, power plays to get up ahead in the world. The list of ills that people have used the scripture for is gross. But, of course, this is only half the story. Because for as many things that people have done to defame the name of God with the justification of the Bible, so too have they done things to uphold the name of God found in the Bible. Before the last 25 years, almost every hospital had a name attached to it. Baptist, Methodist, Saint, Jude, Mary. It was the Bible that brought freedom to women. One of the leading sociologists of the early church, Rodney Stark, has shown from a wide array of archaeological resources that the early church was majority female, which is particularly striking given that the Greco-Roman world in the first and second centuries was disproportionately male due to selective infanticide of baby girls and the high maternal death rates in childbirth. It was the Bible that has helped 
currently the fastest growing church in the world, the underground Iranian church, led mostly by women. It was the Bible that Nelson Mandela built his platform on to free South Africa of apartheid. It was the Bible that led William Wilberforce to be a catalyst for change in the issues of social justice in England and around the world as it relates to the slave trade. Throughout history, the Bible has been used for great ill, and it has been used for significant good. And when we think about us, one of the challenges of reading the Bible is an our inability to read it how it was meant to be read. And you do not have to go back very far to find examples for this. This happens nearly every day. Take the last two weeks. President Biden rolls out a college loan forgiveness plan, and both sides of the political aisle use the scripture to advocate for or lament against the policy. Over a two-day period last week, searches for debt-related topics surged 20 times above average on Bible Gateway. Four verses, for and against loan forgiveness, were the top gaining passes on the site. I am not here to set a position. I'm just saying it is innate in us to figure out how we can leverage the Bible for personal gain. We cannot help ourselves. What scripture can I find to support my position? And things outside the church but affect the church like climate change and health care are hotly contested topics in the American Christian experiment. And the Bible has become a prop on how to defend that position or advocate for that position. Things like gun control. People on both sides use the Bible to defend their position. Even more to the point, they just go to Jesus, both sides, to use their position of why they are right. And things inside the church like communion, women in leadership, spiritual gifts, all fiercely debated topics, each have their sides and each have the scriptures to support their sides. And categorically speaking, I would argue that you have two main groups of people, and there are certainly subsets of people here, but there are staunchly traditional fundamentalists, and there are staunchly progressives. Traditional fundamentalists are those who take every word of the Bible literally, with little respect, to context, metaphor, imagery, or allegory. So rigid commands, little freedom. They hold to this bumper sticker. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The only problem with this line of thinking is that there is one line missing in the bumper sticker. I interpret it. It just doesn't fit really well in the three stanza. Um, so leave it out. Um, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks and the concept of interpretation. But just know that the Bible is not as cut and dry as we would like it to be. On the flip side, progressive fund or progressives seem to be lax on anything related to inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. So helpful suggestions rather than holistic lifestyles. The idea that Christianity is primarily a book of beautiful literature and helpful proverbs, but mostly outdated in terms of social norms, especially but not limited to things like sexual ethics. And this conservative progressive divide, so to speak, has been going on since about the 70s, and we are still reeling from it. And let me just say, as, as an aside, okay, as someone who spent the better part of five years talking with 
um, pastors and missionaries and church planters from around the globe. This is inherently an American problem. They do not wrestle with issues like this in Mexico or Ghana or Papua New Guinea or China. It is a mark of our privilege that we even have these conversations. And this, by the way, is not to say that they're not important. It's just a reminder of some perspective. Our protection of religious liberty and the fact that we are not, we are not living in an active war zone should humble us somewhat when it comes to conversations around what we tend to fight about in the church. The Chinese church that meets underground, that is full of millions of people, is not arguing over these issues. They're just really hungry to know the Bible. And then you have folks completely outside the realm of Christianity where something else is happening. Because for decades growing up, the predominant question that was happening, that was being asked of older generations was, is Christianity true for the world? The book I was given as a senior in high school, as I was commissioned off into college, was Josh McDowell's A Ready Defense. This massive book on apologetics. And there was a pressing need at the time for vigorous apologetics. Do we know the facts about the Bible? Can we make an argument for God? Do we have a defense lined up when someone lights up with a question that we may not be ready for? But the last 15 years has been a pretty hard shift. The question is no longer, is Christianity true for the world? The question is, is Christianity good for the world? Because during a lot of Western Civ, the Bible was viewed as an inherently good book, even if people didn't pay attention to it or follow it. The Bible is now no longer good, and it's, we've skipped neutral. The Bible is an inherently evil book. That needs to be edited at best and eradicated at worst. Now it is seen as outdated, misogynistic, abusive, used by a certain majority of people to silence the rest so that everyone might fall in line towards some totalitarian version of their religion. And culturally speaking, that is where we are at. And I don't say that as, hey, we need to go and defend the Bible. I say that as, do we even know what it says? If we are attempting to live a holistic lifestyle where we see our life following Jesus and dwelt by the Spirit, sent to our city, can we have a coherent conversation around the water cooler about the Bible? What is your relationship to the Bible? My hunch is that there are different types of people in the room, but you could probably boil them down to a few categories. There are those who love the scripture. You get up, you soak it up. This book gives you life, it gives you energy. This um, spiritual discipline is what they call a downstream discipline, which is mean this is what happens, this is what you do naturally. This comes really easy to you. You love spending time with God in the Word. This is how you connect with Him. And then there are those of us who are maybe apathetic to the scripture. You don't hate it, but you certainly don't love it. Getting life from it is not how you would describe your time as reading the Bible. It's more confusing than it is freeing. Scripture study and memorization feels Bible drilly to you, and there's a gnawing sense that you're not even really sure how to read it. 
You come across passages like King Herod committing to kill all those two-year-olds during the birth of Jesus, and you are horrified. But then you read Exodus, where God seemingly does the same thing to the firstborn Egyptians, and you're confused? Feels a little contradictory. You're not sure what to do with that. So you just skip it because you can't square the passage and it's too complicated to sort out so it feels easier to ignore. And then there are those of us who, if we're honest, are inherently opposed to the Bible. It's not that we're apathetic to it. It's that we take a lot of issue with it. Maybe we don't see it as inherently evil, but we do believe it has some inherently evil parts in it. Take, for instance, the story of Jericho, where we read the story of Israel marching around the walls. And literally, I grew up in Sunday school singing the song about Jericho falling. And it's funny. Now I'm 32, I read the story, and I'm like, is this mass genocide? Is God commanding mass genocide to a country? Or what about the patriarch of our faith who God instructed to take his little boy up to a mountain to kill? Or what about the man after God's own heart, the greatest king before Jesus, who used his power and authority to rape a woman and then had her husband killed in war? This is the dude that we are supposed to admire. Or what about all those texts that seem to imply women are generally subservient to men? Just kind of feels outdated, potentially wrong. Plus, what about all the other things? Like, where did this book even come from? Who were the gatekeepers that decided what writings would get into the canon of Scripture and what were left out? And what do we do with those that were left out? And how did we get from Greek and Hebrew to modern-day English? And how can that translation of thousands of years be trustworthy? And what do terms like inerrancy and inspiration and interpretation even mean? Is the text only divine, meaning it came down from heaven with no human involvement? Or is it only human, merely consisting of the sages of history that have something significant to say? Might it be both? <laughs> A divine word delivered through human means? And why is that so difficult to square? And how do we actually read the Bible? Do we read Genesis 1 the same way we reread Genesis 10? The same way we read Genesis 50 and Amos and John and 1 Peter and Revelation? How do we apply poems and apocalyptic visions? And what about the so-called skeletons in God's closet? The passages of Scripture that feel impossible to read. The ones where as you read them, you're just cringing. Are we reading them correctly? And if we are, what exactly do we do with that? And can they be trusted? I mean, these things were written thousands and thousands of years ago. Do we have any verification that these are accurate accounts? And are they authoritative for our lives now? The Bible and its history is a strange story. And if the stuff in the scripture doesn't at least give you pause, then we're not reading the same book.
Because if we're honest, we have all been there, read something in the Bible, heard something taught in the Bible, and thought to ourselves, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So we're going to explore all those questions in the next 10 weeks. But what I want to do is give us a thesis, because here is what we are working toward. Okay? This came from a really tiny book called, Un, uh, called Unbreakable by Andrew Wilson. And this is what he says. We don't trust in Jesus because we trust the Bible. We trust the Bible because we trust in Jesus. We love him, and we've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, we will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. It is the last line that is hard for us. Because that's the key. The scriptures say that they are infallible, unbreakable from God. Here is the thing. A lot of books claim that. The Book of Mormon claims that. The Quran claims that. So we can't say that we believe something just because it claims to be infallible. We don't believe the Bible because we believe the Bible. We follow Jesus, worship Jesus, love Jesus, and Jesus loved the scripture of his day. And so we will too, even if some of our questions remain unanswered and our answers aren't so popular. There is so much to wrestle with when it comes to the Bible. So many legitimate questions, doubts, uncertainties, and confusions. And that's just it. We're going to have to do some wrestling. Following Jesus is full of so much tension. The scripture loves tension. It lives in tension. And if you read the Gospels, so does Jesus. And we have grown increasingly uncomfortable with the tension. So the next semester, I would like for us to get reacquainted with some of the tension that we find in the Bible. The next eight weeks will not answer all of your questions. <laughs> in fact, it's likely that you will walk away with more questions than answers. But it's not questions that bother God. What is more bothersome than questions is the ignoring of them. And they refusing to come to terms with them. And this is the journey that we're on. So for the next few minutes, I just want to circle back to what Michelle read. Because this is a starting place when you read the scriptures. The Sadducees were a sect of Jewish leaders. Mostly made up of wealthy priestly families who were notoriously known for holding only the law as holy. Okay, The law, the first five books of the scripture. Those are from God. But the prophets... They reject it. And so what is not explicitly mentioned in the first five books of the Bible is resurrection. And thus the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. So when they hear of this Jesus preaching and teaching and performing signs in the name of God, they corner him. Now, it might seem extremely odd that in a serious debate, someone would make up a silly hypothetical scenario and then act like they've debunked a really crucial doctrine. We are fortunate to not live in a time where that ever happens. It's really great. And so they give this scenario, the instruction from the law of when a husband dies, the brother of that husband marries the widow, raises up the children for the brother, 
And this, by the way, was actually for the woman's good, because at that time, without the protection of marriage, most women were left for dead. So the Sadducees give the scenario where they expound on the second and third and fourth all the way down to the seventh husband. And then the woman dies. So who gets to be married to her in the afterlife? And the point is to trap him theologically and prove to Jesus how absurd the resurrection is. Implying that the resurrection is exactly like this life. And if a woman is married to more than one man, and at that time the siblings of one family, then she would be found guilty of incest after the resurrection. And Jesus responds by saying this. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So many things happening here. Just want to highlight a few. First, notice what Jesus does. He actually appeals to them. This is I, I hate this term, but this is such a Jesus juke, okay? If we don't pay attention, we'll miss it. But actually, as I was studying it this week, I missed it this time, the first time I read it. If Jesus wanted to quickly debunk the Sadducees and be on his way, he would have just gone to Daniel or Isaiah, where the resurrection themes are not just hinted at implicitly, but talked about explicitly. But he knows the Sadducees do not view the scriptures as view those scriptures as authoritative. He knows the argument would hold no weight with him. So what does he do? He appeals to the first great prophet of Israel, Moses, whose writings they deem as authoritative. And essentially says, haven't you read what you deem as holy? Don't you see how the theme of resurrection is already coming up in the Exodus story? Jesus is restating what Moses had said, that God was in covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob centuries after they had died. He is saying the fact that Moses keeps referring to God as the God of these three patriarchs means they will be raised up with the rest of the people of God on the last day. And the Sadducees' inability to recognize what they were reading in the scriptures. And then they use the scriptures that they know to try and destroy Jesus in an argument. And it completely backfires. And Jesus says two things at his rebuke. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You do not know the Hebrew Bible. I fear that for us. I fear that for the church at large. I don't think we know the long, wide, complex, beautiful, difficult story. We do not read the Bible as a coherent story about Jesus. We read the Old Testament as some strange individual tales, and then we flip to the New. We get some about Jesus, and we're uncertain what any of it has to do with what we just read. And so we mirror the Sadducees. We will read what is comfortable for us to read and what we are good with reading. And we will explore this more in a couple weeks, but let me just say that especially now, our unfamiliarity with the scriptures will not hold up our faith. It will flatten it for a time, and then as life continues on, enough difficult things will happen that it will get absolutely blown up. Now, your faith 
getting blown up is not always a bad thing. In fact, Jesus blew up so many people's faith in the Jewish traditions, see Nicodemus, where they are actually drawn back to their first love, and that is God. Sometimes the most beautiful thing that can happen is for Jesus to blow up our life so we can actually find him at the bottom, and we rebuild our faith on the foundation of Jesus. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Having said that, unanswered questions are part of Christianity. Disillusionment, frustration, they all encompass following Jesus. But a refusal to look at those things square in the face and wrestle with them before God will slowly dissolve your entire faith. The deconstruction thing that is happening, that's been happening for the last decade, quite frankly, it's just made it into mainstream media now, um, is, not a, is not an unbelief in Jesus. And in, in, in my, this neighborhood, this literal, this, this literal neighborhood that we live in is littered with people who have deconstructed their entire faith. It is not because they don't love Jesus. It's because they, like me, have failed to look some of the hard passages of the Bible square in the face. And their refusal to do that over many, 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 many years ultimately led them to finally, someone finally gave them a compelling enough argument where they said, okay, my faith was on a house of cards and it completely crumbled. And I have great empathy for them because I am them. I realize the struggle of reading the Bible. It is a struggle. Reading it through Western eyes is actually... We can't help but read it through Western eyes because we are Westerners. But it was not written by Western people. So we need not read it through Western eyes. The scriptures were not written to us, but they were written for us. The breath of God and the words of God through the hands of humans is one of the ways God chooses to joyfully reveal himself to us. Do we know the Bible? Do we find hope that what is hinted at in Genesis 3 comes to fruition in John 20? And are we familiar with the priesthood? of Israel described in 2 Kings 23 and what it means that Jesus is our high priest in Hebrews 4? Are we familiar with the prophet Joel's vision of the Spirit being poured out on the earth and that vision being fulfilled in the church in Acts 2 and then carrying on to us even now? I am not saying that each of us have to be a Bible scholar or a theology nerd or have all our answers to systematic questions about abstract ideas. But if you look at what discipleship to Jesus or any rabbi meant in the first century, there was an intentional formational process to memorize the Tanakh, the, the law, the Tanakh, which is the, the Hebrew word for the law, the writings, and the prophets, the entire Old Testament. People had that memorized. We've got a verse in our head 
Maybe. Maybe. Early disciples that followed their rabbi knew it by heart. And what became so striking to Jesus' disciples and what became so disturbing in the culture is that they not only knew it by heart, but they began to find themselves in the middle of the story. It was not just the ancient story of their great-great-grandfather. It was now their story. And oh, by the way, it was hitting the climax of the plot. Do we know the Bible? Jesus invites everyone to follow him. No one's off limits. No one is too far gone. No one is outside the wide, expansive, expansive reach of his ever-extending grace. But following Jesus implies an action verb. Following. Come after me, walk behind me, listen to me, go where I go, engage with whom I eat with, follow me to retreat, follow me to engage. It requires walking. And I fear perhaps we have made it possible to get really comfortable at admiring Jesus from a distance and even being okay with being called a Jesus follower without doing some of the following. Jesus loved the Hebrew Bible. He embodied the scripture of his day and that is our great challenge. To find God in the Bible and then to follow him from it. And then Jesus says you do not know the power of God. He is not saying you do not know that God is powerful. (laughs) He is saying that you do not believe and have not experienced his power. Here is something that's very true. Some of the most theologically minded, biblically attuned people that I know are some of the most arrogant. Knowledge does puff up. And it is not immune to the scriptures. A lot of people who have a lot of knowledge about a lot of things are arrogant. But it seems more difficult to stomach when it is those of us who know the Bible but do not act as if we have been humbled by it. The Sadducees not only took issue with the writings of the prophets, they took issue with the supernatural reality that God is above them. And that God could actually raise the dead. He is not someone who can be controlled. He is someone who we open-handedly say, here I am. If you keep reading, it says, uh, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then a lawyer asked him the question, test him, teacher, which is the great commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind. And with all your soul. And this is the great and first one. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. A lawyer was an expert in the law. The person knows it up and down. There was this constant debate happening with the Pharisees. Around lighter commandments. And heavier or weightier commandments of the law. And so attempting once again to corner Jesus. He asked him which is it? And Jesus again responds by giving him the great commandment, which is total devotion and surrender to God. And then says, you actually don't understand. The second is like the first. The entire Hebrew Bible that you supposedly read can be summed up in those two sentences. See, the Pharisees' list of commands was long. 600 plus commands long. And they were intent on keeping each and every command. Because if they were going to make it to God, it was going to be dependent on their ability to keep the law. 
There was no one who followed the Torah with more strict and stringent protocol than the Pharisees, and yet they had missed the foundation of the entire book. Love. Covenant-making, promise-keeping, heart-shaping love. The greatest command in Scripture was to reorient your lifestyle around God. It looks like an open hands, an open table, full of honesty, care, truth, justice. A love for God will inherently lead to a love for others. And what I don't want you to walk away from this or this semester is to think, I'm a bad Christian, I'm not reading the Bible enough, I feel like a failure. Here's a helpful newsflash for us. You will never read your Bible enough. I will never read it enough because I will never be enough. Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Guess what? It doesn't. So I must depend on another's righteousness on another's holiness to enter the kingdom. And when you receive that righteousness, your journey with Jesus is now empowered by the Spirit. Because our discipleship to Jesus is not about getting God to love us more. It is about becoming someone who receives the love of God and from that wants and loves God more and thus becomes a person of love to those around us, being so secure and firm. And who God is to us will make you free. I want this church to be a free church. To experience freedom. To be much slower to judge, more quick to listen. To be people who are overcome by conviction. Overcome staunchly in our conviction and compelled by our compassion. Reading the Bible, studying it, is about becoming like the person to whom the Bible is all about. It is to make us become a person of love. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, by the way, did not come to do every command in the law. He came to fulfill each of the commands. The ceremonial commands, the purity codes, the reason we no longer need sacrifices in a temple, in a city, in the Middle East. This is because Jesus became our purification. He is both priest and lamb. He is the fulfillment of all that was foretold in the Old Testament. And he is the joy of all those who wait his return. So I don't know what your reading of scripture looks like. It doesn't necessarily need to look a certain way. One of the most helpful realizations that I have had over the last three years is that reading the Bible is not so much about inspiration, like I read this morning and I got super inspired by God. It's about repetition. You do something over the course of 30 years, you will become formed by that thing. Most of the time when I read the Bible, I open the Bible, I read it, I have a journal, I take some notes, I pray, I listen. Most of the time, sounds like this. It's just a lot of quiet. Sometimes, I sense the Lord speaking, and I write it down. Sometimes, I sense the Lord speaking, and I act on it. Other times, 
I sense the Lord speaking, and I get really ticked off. So I write about it. The, the issue here is not, that the challenge here is not to become an expert in the Bible. The challenge is to actually listen to God who speaks in the Bible and become like God, who got away with God in a way that I think in our distracted, overly energized, hyper-extended brains, we've got so much going on. We don't carve out 20 minutes to just sit in the quiet and open this ancient story and find ourselves in the middle of it. That is the great challenge. It is also the great journey. And so I pray that the next eight weeks launches us into the next season where we become people of the book. And by doing so, we actually become people like Jesus, provoked, spurred on to love and good works. Let's pray. Father, we... We need you, and we acknowledge that. We want to be people who love following you and who find joy in the Bible. And yet we also realize that there are things in the Bible that are difficult for us. To comprehend, And so we, we open our hands up to you and we say, wrestle with us. Wrestle with us. Give us insights and understanding, but greater and more than that, help us become humble people who follow you with sincerity and integrity and honesty so that we might find grace in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicknox.org.